So 84 people uh, were baptized between the two campuses, Fremont and Tiffin. Yeah, it's awesome. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, there are people here in our church at Grace Point. Uh, just real quick, we're called Grace Point, not Grace Community, like Fremont and Tiffin are, because there's a Grace Community over here in East Point. And so we didn't want to confuse people, so we went with the name Grace Point. Uh, anyways, that's besides the point. And besides the point, anyways, um, so I know we have people in our church who have placed their faith in Christ here recently. I know we have people who have placed their faith in Christ um, not so recently who still need to take that step of obedience and um, follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Um, and, and yeah, just an explanation real quickly. That didn't save those people from their sins. That was just an outward demonstration of what Christ has already done when they asked God to forgive them of their sins. And they told God, I, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But that's the moment of salvation for a person. That's just an outward demonstration. Dying to ourselves, raising a new life to Christ. Which we're going to kind of talk about a little bit this morning. We kind of talk about it every week. Um, and how about that first song? Josiah doing a little, some of you guys, what first song? Yeah, we start at 1030. I, you know, some of you people are like, church time? Okay, and... So if you weren't here, Josiah did a little bit of a rap in there, you know, and so, you know, he's got a personality that you wouldn't expect that, and uh, then that comes out of him like, wow, that's pretty good, and then Jeff is actually getting oxygen after that last song, just so you know, he's okay, he's in the back, he's got oxygen, he'll be fine. Anyways, <clears throat> I don't know if you guys are like this, but this is, this is a little bit about me, I'm going to talk a little bit about me, and as, um, ever since I was a little kid, if somebody said, oh, Harold, you have to do this or oh man Harold you've got to try this I just there's something in me that says no I don't I don't have to so I grew up outside Chicago and there is White Castle you guys familiar with White Castle do they have it in Ohio okay you okay so you know why they're probably not really in business anymore anyways they have what they call sliders little mini hamburgers and there's a reason why they call them sliders we won't get into it right now but and so my friend and I we'd be driving around we used to shoot laughs we used to call it and so we were out doing the western lap into some of the other suburbs, and there's all, we'd always go past this White Castle, and he'd always stop to get some White Castle and always stink up his car. Oh, Harold, you got to try this. No, thank you. I, I might have had one slider in my life, and that did it for me. I didn't need any more. The other one is, you guys probably haven't heard of this movie, but it's called Star Wars. And uh, so well, that started when I was in fifth grade. Wow, that long ago? Was it black and white, silent? <laughs> so that, that started back, way back then, and everyone was, oh, Harold, you have got to watch. You've got to go to the movies and watch it. You gotta... And then my kids came along, and Star Wars evidently was still going on. Oh, Dad, you've got to check out Star Wars. And Kim's like, oh, honey, you've got to check out Star Wars, even with that. Nope. I might have watched, in 57 years of my life, uh, I might have watched five, ten minutes, and it was as I was walking through the room, hey, what do you guys watch? Oh, Star Wars. You know, I'd be walking there. what do you guys watch? Oh, Star Wars. And so I might have watched, you know, a little bit. But what about when Jesus says, or God says, hey, you have to do this? What's, what's our response? You know, for instance, when God says, 
that husbands, you have to love your wives self-sacrificially. Or wives, you have to show love to your husbands by respecting them. Or parents, you, you have to raise your kids and teach them and instruct them in the ways of the Lord, as the Bible puts it. Or kids, you have to obey your parents. Or employees, you have to obey your boss, even if he or she is a real jerk. Because you're not working for them, you're working for Jesus, but you have to do it. Or, or just as, as Christians, you, living life, you have to be kind to people. People who are not kind to you. You have to be gentle with people who are not gentle to you. How do we respond to that? We'll go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. It's page 1025 if you're using the Bible there in the seats. And again, if you need a Bible, feel free to take that Bible. We also have some other ones. Um, some of them have some cool designs on them that are not just a black Bible. Uh, we have those in the office, so if you want one of those, feel free. But you can take that one if you want as well. And we're going to see about why and how we should obey Jesus when he tells us that we have to do something, whatever it might be. So as you're turning there, I just want to kind of get you caught up. And Jesus, so Jesus right now is in northern Israel, the region of Galilee. He was in Nazareth, which was his home town, a little town of about 400 people. And he moved up to Capernaum to do his more teaching and healings and all that kind of stuff. And so he's been operating along the shore, uh, the western shore there of the Sea of Galilee, or Lake of Gennesaret is what Luke calls it, same place, different names. And, um, and you go to the next slide. So from Luke chapter 5, that we're going to start today, all the way through chapter 17, that we'll finish today. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going 12 chapters. Um, Jesus is teaching and doing miracles along the Sea of Galilee. So everything is happening. It's 12 chapters. It's a pretty long period of time that he's operating there. And you might be asking, well, why is he doing that? Why wouldn't he be going to other parts of Israel? Why is he going to Jerusalem? That was the capital city. That's where the temple was. And that's where you know, most of the people were. Why wouldn't he be doing that? Well... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Isaiah, 700 years before this, he prophesied and said, hey, the Messiah, the one that God is going to say, uh, send to save mankind from their sin, when he shows up, he's going to be in this area. He's going to be in northern Galilee. They call it Naphtali, but it's northern uh, Israel. It's in the region of Galilee. And uh, Isaiah said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring spiritual light to a spiritually dark place. He was going to bring spiritual understanding to a place that didn't have spiritual understanding. He was going to bring God's message of salvation. And so when Jesus came, they should have remembered what Isaiah said. And they, oh, that's what the Messiah was going to do. And then Jesus shows up doing the very same things that the Messiah was going to do in the very same area that he was going to do it. They should have connected the dots. That Jesus was, in fact, the one who God sent in order to save mankind from their sin. Now we know that in Israel, the majority of people did not believe it. Some did, but the majority didn't uh, connect that dot. So we're going to work through chapter 5 this morning. I'm going to try to work through it fairly quickly. Um, and so if you can picture this, Jesus is standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's right on the beach, just fishing boats uh, lined along there. But there's so many people that they are pressing on him, and so he's having to keep backing up and backing up. And pretty soon he's going to be in the water. It's kind of like if you were up at Mommy Bay and you're on the beach, 
and you're turned around and there's a bunch of people on the beach and then they're on the sidewalk and then on the grass and in the parking lot and they all want to see you and so they're all trying and they're like, why would you want to see me? I don't know. But anyways, they want to see you and so they're kind of pressing in and you're being pushed into Lake Erie. And so then this is what happens. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's or Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out or row further out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, what are you, crazy? Well, he didn't actually put it that way. But master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Basically, he was saying, Jesus, you got to be crazy. We've been out fishing and we've caught nothing. We've been out when you're supposed to go fishing and caught nothing. Now you want us to go out in the middle of the day to go fishing? That's not what we do. That doesn't make any sense. It's, I don't understand why you want to do it. But, whoo, thank you. I don't have it memorized. Believe it or not. Anyways, uh, so, but, in other words, I'm not going to do what I think I should do. I'm going to do what you want me to do. So, oh, by the way, I put a little note there. So, if you're a first-time attender here, um, the regular attenders are like, oh boy, here we go again. I put in the parentheses. I do that because as I'm reading the Bible, you probably aren't this way, but when I'm reading the Bible, I'll read two or three verses and be like, what did I just read? And so I, I usually read, and I either have my computer or I have a, a journal, and I write things down and I make notes so that I can kind of stay with what I'm reading. Okay, so I thought it was helpful for me, so I started doing it while I was teaching. Some people say, man, we really like it when you do that, and so that's why I do it. Um, but anyway, this is what we call faith. People like to talk about I'm a person of faith. Well, faith is really going, I want to do this. God says to do this. This doesn't sound really wise. I think I know better, but I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Okay, that's called faith. I will do what you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Your idea was better. <laughs> he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, what? We had some guys in our church who liked to go fish, and, and so they wanted to put together a, a fishing ministry, and they came up with a bunch of different names. I'm not even going to go into them, but anyways, catching men just sounds weird, right? And so what he's meaning there is, you're going to help me draw people to me for salvation. That's their job. They're to catch men. They're supposed to draw men and women to Christ for salvation. All right, we'll move on. And when they had brought their boats to land... They left everything and followed him. So, an interesting point here before we go on. Um, the guys left everything. Think about it. It would be like Jesus saying to you, follow me, and you quit your job. And you started following Jesus around. I mean, how would you eat? How would you pay for the things you need, right? These guys left everything. They left their business. And they went with Jesus. What would their families do? 
Peter, we know, has a mother-in-law, which means he has a wife, which means he's got a family. And What would they do? Well, it's kind of neat, because uh, we don't know the rest of the story, but we do know, it's almost like Jesus says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Well, your husbands are coming with me. And so I'm going to give you so many fish that you can actually kind of build up a savings account until we can kind of work out however else you're going to be getting fish that day and partner up with some other people or what have you. But Jesus provides for them. He gives them over and above what they actually need. Well, after he says, hey, you're going to catch men, now Jesus goes on and he catches some men. He wants to show them how we're doing this. And these guys are from different um, life situations and circumstances. And so this is the first one he interacts with. Well, he's in one of the cities. He's probably actually outside the city because people with leprosy couldn't be in the city. They had to live outside the city. So there's a, a man covered from head to toe with leprosy. Now, leprosy, if you don't know, is a, a nerve-deadening disease. And it shows itself with rashes and blisters starting in the back of the neck and going down the back, and then it goes to the rest of your body. It's very painful. It has a, a stench to it that is pretty bad, as I understand. Um, and then people have deformities. And the deformities don't come because of the disease itself. It, it comes because they don't have any feeling anymore in their fingers and their toes, and it keeps working closer and closer to the body. And so they end up burning their hands. They end up cutting off fingers and toes. Um, it, and it's just a really nasty disease. So he meets this man, and then this was, happens. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So this guy goes, I, I'm confident Jesus can make me clean. I just don't know if he's willing after all, I'm a person with leprosy, and I'm not supposed to be around people. And if, when people see me, I should have been yelling, unclean, unclean. And then Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Which again, nobody in their right mind would ever touch somebody with leprosy back then. It's not what you do, but Jesus does. And he says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. He was healed. And he ordered him to tell no one. But go, so obey the Old Testament law, go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So he didn't tell anybody, but everybody else did. So the news about him was spreading even further, and large crowds were gathering to hear him to be healed of their sickness. So this life is just bearing down on Jesus. His job responsibilities are increasing. The pressure on him is increasing, and here's what he does. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. We talked about this previously, and here we see Jesus doing it again. And so here's this time in Jesus' life. Again, just kind of a side note here. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But when his workload increased, when pressure of life increased, when that happens to us, what, what you'll hear people say is, oh man, work has been crazy, family's been crazy, I just need some me time. I just need to jump into the bathtub and fill the water up real high and get a book and have the Epsom salts or whatever, the bubble bath, whatever. I need to go out into the trees for a while and just kind of hang out. I just need some me time, get some coffee and just be alone. Not Jesus. He took we time. When the pressures of life built on Jesus, when there is stress and stuff going on in his life, he made sure he went and spent time with God the Father. Now, Jesus is God. He doesn't need to do that. 
Right? I mean, he knew what God knew because he's God. He's doing it as an example for us. So when our lives get crazy, when, when we're freaking out, whenever the, we don't go for me time, we go for we time. We spend time with God and his word. And we let him give us direction. Jesus said in John that he, he didn't do anything except God the Father told him to do it. He wouldn't do anything else other than what God the Father said. That's an example to us. When we spend time with God during those times, he refreshes us, he gives us strength, but he also prioritizes for us what we should and shouldn't be doing. Some of that pressure, some of the to-dos are, don't need to be done. So anyways, a little side note. You can mark that down for future reference if you'd like. All right, so um, I got to see where I'm at. Again, it is a 9 o'clock hour too. It's like, get into this, and then i like, okay, what are we doing next? So sometime later, Jesus finds himself. He's teaching in a house this time. Those houses back then were a little bit more open than our houses. So he's in the house. It's packed with people. There are people packed around the house. And as he's teaching, start, stuff starts falling from the ceiling. And so he, he looks up, and you know, people are getting hit in the head. And like, what's going on? And here comes a guy who's on a stretcher, and his friends are lowering him down, which I don't know if I would trust my friends to do that, but they did. And they lowered him down right in front of Jesus. They, they couldn't get to Jesus because there's so many people, so they made a skylight, and they just kind of came down right in front of Jesus. I don't know if the homeowners wanted a skylight, but they got one anyways. And here's what happened. Seeing their faith, that of the man and the friends, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. You think that's what the guy was looking for? <laughs> he's a paralytic. He can't walk. That's why he's on the stretcher. Jesus goes, hey, glad you're here. Uh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. Why would he do that? Well, let's... Let's see. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man? Oh, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Sorry. So all these people are telling everybody about what Jesus is doing. Well, that's making its way to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. They can't do any of this. They're the religious leaders. They're the ones that are good with God. So they start coming up to find out what's going on with Jesus. They're going to investigate this guy to figure out what's going on. So they're there. They're seeing this happen. And he says, Your sins are forgiven. So the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You can tell this isn't going to go in a good direction. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, again, he's God, he knows everything, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, so think about this, which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk? Well, what would be easier but so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Now, I don't know about you guys. I've actually never been in a cast. Well, I was in a body cast, but um, nothing. My stomach didn't shrink after being in a body cast. But if you have a regular cast, you know, your leg shrinks. You remember that? You take it off, and your leg's all white. It's real puny. And... And then in your arm, the same thing. It's like, eh, they're not the same anymore, right? This guy's been a paralytic for who knows how long. His legs had atrophied. They're just, they're just flopping noodles, right? I mean, right? He, he, couldn't, he couldn't walk. And then Jesus says, get up. He says, immediately he got up before them 
and picked up what had, he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Instantly, his legs went fully formed. Muscles, ligaments, blood flow. Everything was working. The toes were working. The knees were working. And he was able to go home and he went home glorifying God. What that statement means, that word is in the verb, it's a present tense, which means he kept on glorifying God. His life had changed. Prior to knowing Christ, he did life however he was going to do it or however people made him do life because he was being carried around. But now he went about doing life the way God wanted him to do. He's glorifying God. It means to reveal God to others. You do that through what you say. You do that through how you live. But it was day in, day out, no matter what his circumstances, no matter if it was a bad day or a good day, this guy spent his time representing Christ, showing people who God was. They were all struck or seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear. And it has this idea of respect and reverence, not like, ah, we're scared, saying we have seen remarkable things today. And again, who are the they? Well, it's definitely not the religious leaders. Because for them, they were not happy with Jesus. So what was easier for Jesus to do? You don't have to set out, just kind of think about it. Was it easier for him to say, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for him to say, rise up and walk? Now, I've had some people come to me, well, you know, actually, both are just as easy for Jesus because he's God and he's infinitely powerful and can do both. Okay. <laughs> oh, welcome to church. So smart. From the Pharisees' perspective, what was, what was easier for Jesus to do? I wasn't giving him a hard time. It was just funny. It's easier for him to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because they don't know if the guy's sins were ever forgiven. They don't know what the spiritual transaction was that happened between that guy and, and God. He could say it all day long. But to say to a guy who can't walk, whose legs are shriveled like noodles, get up and walk... That's a lot harder from a Pharisee's perspective because if he didn't do it, then he wasn't God. And so Jesus heals him. He gets up and walks. His sins are forgiven because he said they were. The guy goes off with this new life and relationship with God. And they see, oh man, this is, this is God at work. Or did they? They may not have. So things aren't going well. Um, and so we're going to keep on moving on. And after that, we went, uh, after that, he went out. So he heals this guy. He goes outside. He notices a tax collector. His guy's name is Levi or Matthew. Uh, this is also the Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And he's sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, two words. I'm sure there was more to it. But he says to him, basically, follow me. Now, before I go any further, uh, a tax collector... These people uh, in Israel, they were Jewish people who um, would go out and get taxes on behalf of Rome, who was in control of this area. And Rome said, hey, we want a certain amount of tax, and then you can get however much more for your you know, business expenses and all that kind of stuff over and above whatever the tax is. Well, they were helping the enemy. And so these guys were considered traitors. Nobody liked these people. Nobody ever wanted them around. They would go out and they would extort money from their fellow Jewish people so they get more and more money. They were wealthy, and most of them were wealthy because they were cheating people. And so they hated them. But Jesus says to a guy who's like that, follow me. So Jesus is connecting himself with a, 
a known traitor. Uh, go back. Yep, and he left everything behind, including the business, and got up and began to follow him. All right? But he didn't want to keep this to himself, so then the next thing he does, he gives a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people, basically outcasts, who were reclining at the table with him. <laughs> There's the Pharisees again. They're always around. Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at the disciples. They're not going to talk to Jesus. They're going to talk to his, the guys who are with him, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Again, these are the lowest of society. These are guys that they shouldn't have been around. And so then Jesus jumps into this, because the disciples don't know anything yet. They're being taught. He says this, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now he's talking, he's using physical work, um, and, uh, a physical illustration, but he's talking about spiritual. All right, So those who need to be healed spiritually. I have not come to call the righteous. In other words, I haven't come to call those who think that they're right with God because they think that they're so good, that they've done some religious good thing or any other kind of good things. I didn't come to call them because they think they're good to go. They're not, but they think they are. But I've come to call sinners, those who know they are spiritually sick, those who know that they're not right with God. Those are the ones I've called, and I've called them to repentance. I've called them to repentance. So Jesus continues to frustrate the leaders, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel, because they're shocked. They can't believe that Jesus is hanging out with these sinners. See, the Pharisees believed that if they were walking out in the market, and they, can, you know, they wore long flowing garbs, and they don't wear tight-fitting clothes like we have today, they believed that if their outer garment touched the outer garment of somebody who was like this, which, by the way, is pretty much everybody in their mind, that that sin on that person transferred to them. And so when they get back, got back to their place, they would have to do their whole ceremonial washing to make themselves clean again. And here Jesus is, this guy who claims to be God, here's Jesus hanging out with these people. Doesn't he know that he's going to make himself not right with God? He should hang out with us because we're right with God. And we'll help him continue to be right with God. Again, they're thinking, not his. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't understand me. I didn't come for you guys. Because you think you're wrong, but you think you're right with God. I came for those who know that they're not right with God. And, and just a little side note. Uh, we got people today who are what they're calling deconstructing their faith. They, they're looking at what the Bible teaches, what they thought they were taught all these years, and they're starting to say, no, actually, this is not what... I actually believe, you know, they may have said I was a Christian. A lot of times they'll use this passage that gets them started in that direction. Why? Because they'll say, well, Jesus ate with sinners. And so Jesus is saying, hey, all you who are sinners, you're welcome at the table. Everybody, anybody, no matter what you've done, no matter how you live, no matter what your lifestyle is, you're all welcome at the table. That's right. But then they take it another step. And they'll say, well, yes, welcome. And by the way, he loves you as you are. And you just continue to be who you are. There's a problem with that because Jesus says, I've called them to repentance. And Luke, when Luke is talking about repentance, he's talking about the desire in a person's heart to say, I want to be right with God. I want God to forgive me my sins. 
And then that person demonstrates that. So they're turning from how they think they should get to heaven and have a relationship with God to how God says they should have a relationship with him and as through faith in Christ, having their sins forgiven. But then that is shown in how they live their lives. So they leave behind how they used to live and they start living the way God says to live, how he lays out scripturally. And so sadly, they, they hear part of the message, they don't hear the full message. And so I just wanted to throw that, again, one of those little free notes that I, I tend to do. All right, so moving on. So now this meal was probably during a time, possibly during a time, where they were fasting. And, um, and so what, since they have Jesus' attention now, they're going to let Jesus know another problem they have with Jesus. And that is his disciples don't fast like the Pharisees' disciples do. That just means a follower of the, of the Pharisees. Or John the Baptist's. You know, his disciples, those who follow John the Baptist, they're actually fasting, but yours don't. And so what's the deal with that? So Jesus gives them, takes this opportunity. He's going to teach them, basically, um, that everything that you thought you knew is gone, and everything is new. All right, So that's kind of the premise here as we read through this. So and Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? So he's saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here, and we should be celebrating the fact that I'm here. We shouldn't be fasting. We should be celebrating. All right? But the days will come when the bridegroom, Jesus, is taken away from them, hung on the cross, buried in the tomb for three days, and then they will fast in those days. And so while I'm in the tomb, my, my disciples will be fasting and praying because they're going to be saying, God, what do we do? Jesus is gone. All right? But he, is, uh, but he was also telling a parable. And in the parable, he says, No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And he makes this statement. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. So let me just kind of break this down real quickly for you if I can, hopefully to give some more understanding. The fasting, what's going on with the fasting? So fasting in general is um, a time where you spend with God, some intense period of time that you spend with God, where you give up eating food. You're saying, I'm going to give up my basic needs because I believe you're, I need you more than my food. And so it's just a time for a person, they call a spiritual, excuse me, a spiritual discipline, where they just spend some intense time with God. And, and it's a time of worship, and it's a time of seeking God, maybe for an answer, or just wanting to spend more time with God and just reconnect, if you want to put it that way. The Old Testament law required one fast a year. And it was during the Day of Atonement. And so they were supposed to reflect on the fact that God had freed them from, their, from uh, Egypt as slaves, meaning that God also has freed them from their sin. But the Pharisees thought, well, if one fast a year made us good with God, then multiple fasts a year would make us even that much better with God. If he likes us for one, he's going to love us for a bunch more. And so they made it mandatory. They added to the Old Testament law that God gave Israel other laws, traditions, rituals, and this one was, you have to fast Monday and Thursday. 
Every true follower of God, they would say, must fast on Monday and Thursday. And if you don't fast on Monday and Thursday, maybe you're not really a follower of God. When I was growing up, every true follower of God wore a suit on Sunday. Oh, I'm serious. And if you didn't wear a suit on Sunday, well, one, you couldn't take the offering. Uh, but also, hmm, maybe, maybe you weren't really a follower. Every follower of God did not go to movies. Oh, you go to a movie? Two movies? Hmm. Maybe you're not really a true follower of God. When we add to what the Bible teaches, it's called legalism. These guys were giving, adding traditions, other things, and we have Christian faiths today that add things, saying, oh no, that's, you know, you have to do this. You have to become a member of a church. Otherwise, mm, maybe you're not saved. You have to be baptized. You have to speak in tongues. You have to, you have, whatever. It's not what the Bible teaches. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of your sins by God, that's what saves you. Doing life God's way, as he lays it out scripturally, that's what shows that you're saved. So Jesus is unnecessary, or Jesus is saying it's unnecessary to fast to be with God right now because he's there. God's there. You want to spend time with God? Spend time with me. And so, with Jesus living among them, now he wants to share through his illustrations that everything is changing. Everything is new. He uses these two illustrations. The new cloth to the old cloth. So new cloth doesn't match with old cloth, right? You, you rip your knee when you're a kid, and what did your mom do? Got another, some of you young people are like, you pay $160 for that pair of pants? Um, no, you put another patch from another pair of jeans on it. My mom put another pair of... Some of you guys are just like, what are you talking about? I know, I know, you buy ripped jeans for $130, whatever. I just ripped mine and I'm in fashionable. But anyways, but you put new cloth on old cloth, they don't look alike, you, it doesn't stay stitched to it well. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the new cloth. The Old Testament religious system is the old cloth. Jesus is a new cloth. I don't know if I said old. Jesus is a new cloth. He doesn't look like the Old Testament system. He's not attached to the Old Testament system. Everything is new moving forward. The new wine and old wineskins. New wine is Jesus. Old wine is Old Testament religious system. New wine ferments. And so you have this wineskin that's dry and, and cracked and, and shrunk up. And then you put new wine in it. It's going to ferment. And as it ferments, it expands. And as it expands, it's going to rip those things apart. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the new wine. These things don't go together. You can't mix the Old Testament teaching with me. Because the Old Testament, the teaching of the Old Testament is done. Certainly, man's recreation of the Old Testament religious system into Judaism and Jesus doesn't mix. Any religion that says you're saved by faith or by works and not faith 
doesn't fit Jesus. Jesus is the new, better, permanent way of having God forgive us of our sins and have a relationship. It's no longer a system. It's Jesus. They wanted a system. God wants a relationship. And so he came. And so the sacrificial, his point is that the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, when, they, when Moses was told, hey, do this, sacrifice an animal, and the, the blood was spilt, and they took the blood and they sp- uh, put it on the altar, and they sprayed it on top of the people, which, you know, ugh. You know, but they did that. And then God said, if you believe, if you trust me when I say, you doing that allows your sins to be forgiven for a year, you're forgiven. It's not that that, for, that forgives them. It's our belief or their belief in what God said about that. And so they would do that. But it would only happen for a year. Then every year, Day of Atonement, they had to keep on sacrificing and keep on doing that. And so it was a teaching tool in the Old Testament to point to Jesus who would come one day. So Jesus is the new, better, permanent sacrifice. Because he's man, perfect man, he's God, and he can die on the cross for our sins, pay our penalty. And so Jesus then makes this prediction. His last statement is actually a prediction. He says, no one wants the new wine because the old is good enough. What's he saying there? He knew the hearts of the religious leaders, and he knew that what they were going to do, they were going to choose the old religious system. They are going to choose the old cloth, the old wine. They were going to reject the new. They wanted their system. They didn't want a relationship. And God was offering them a relationship. And sadly, most in Israel did the same. So as we close, coming back to what we were talking about, when, when Jesus says, you have to do this, you have to live this way, what are, what's our response? And I just want to give you two things as we close out. All right, I'm trying to make this quick. There's, there's two things. There's a bunch of things in there. I actually gave you some other things on the way in, a little free stuff here as we were you know, going through the passage. The first one is this. So whatever you're struggling with, wherever it is in your life you're struggling to do what God says to do, that he's saying, hey, you have to do this, be like, yeah, I'm really struggling with that. The first one, Jesus sees below the surface. Going back to Peter, James, and John. Peter thought that what Jesus was saying to go out there was nuts. It was crazy. It didn't make any sense. The way Peter lived life before, his experience, his uh, training, his wisdom would be, no, you don't do that. Jesus was saying, I don't care what you used to think. I don't care how you were trained. I'm telling you right now, go out and do this thing. Why? Because Jesus could see through the water. Jesus knew where the fish were. Jesus knew how he was going to provide for Peter. Peter didn't get it. It's the same thing for us. We can't see beyond what you guys are looking at right now. And I apologize because you haven't looked at me. But there could be somebody breaking into your car. And you don't know because you can't see out there. God can see it. And hopefully he's telling you right now if it's happening so you can run out there and stop him. But... We, we, we don't know what's going to happen in, as you walk out of this building. We don't know what's going to happen this week. We don't know 
if the decision that we're going to make this, way about, uh, this week about something is going to be the best choice, the best idea, or how somebody might react. God does. And so Peter took a step of faith. He was like, I, I, this is what, what you want me to do. This seems weird, but I'm going to do it. And Jesus provided so as you move forward and as you're trying to wrestle with God on what you should or shouldn't do, understand the fact that God knows what you don't. So obey him. As crazy as it might sound, as weird as it might look, as much as people may make fun of you and laugh at you and give you a hard time, do it. Because he knows. He knows what's coming down the pike. And he'll provide. The second thing, leave everything and follow Jesus. Now, for some of you, uh, it may even mean you leave your business. You know, you leave your job because God wants you to go into full-time ministry or maybe even to change jobs. I was a carpenter. God called me into ministry, so it might be that. But probably not. What does it mean? This, that Jesus and religious, uh, religious systems don't work. All right? Jesus, if you want to take Jesus and then add to it a bunch of do's and don'ts and stuff to, to get God's favor... That doesn't mix. Why? Because Jesus already did everything that could be done to have you gain favor with God when he died in your place, when he died on the cross and took your eternal death sentence on himself. Jesus in your personal belief system doesn't mix. You, you can't go... Okay, this is, this is how I viewed life. This is how I thought about life. These are the decisions I made based on my perspective and my understanding and how I evaluate things. And then be like, oh, hey, Jesus, yeah. Hey, you want to be a part of my life? And he's like, yeah, sure. So you bring Jesus in. And you go, okay, so here's how we're going to do life. Here, here's the decisions I'm going to make. And, and you'll bless me. Yeah, thank you. And we're, no, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because that's why we're in the, in the situation that we're in. That's why our life is all messed up, because we keep making stupid decisions. Because any decision we make is out, out of our thinking, and our thinking is ultimately sinful. We think about self, and us, and me, and my, and that's not how it operates. And so we, in our relationships, it's all about me, I, what I want, what I deserve, and our work, and I mean everything, just look at our society, it's all that. It's not, hey, Jesus, join me. No, it's Jesus, I'm a sinner. Look at this. And Jesus looked at my life. He's like, yeah, you're a sinner. Will you, will you forgive me? I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Would you forgive me based on it? Yes, your sins are forgiven. And then it says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that God makes us a new creation. We're, all, we're totally new. It's no longer Harold walking around. It's me with God the Holy Spirit in me. And there's a whole new me. It's all new. My thoughts mean nothing. It's only what God wants. And so 1 Corinthians tells us that we've been given the mind of Christ. Why would God give us the ability to think like Jesus? So that we continue to live the life that keeps messing us up? No. So that we turn and do it the way Jesus wants us to do. To think the way Jesus wants. To perceive, perceive things as Jesus. To, to look at things the way Jesus would look at it, and then react the way Jesus wants us to. And then, together with the Word of Christ, the Bible, we leave our thinking behind, and we go and do it His way. We do that 
by making sure we spend time with him. At the most pressure-filled, frustrating, irritating times in our life, we get with him. We spend time with him. We ask him to give us wisdom and insight and understanding. And then God, give me the strength to do it the way you want me to do it, not the way I think I should do it. It's called humbling yourself. It's not easy. But it's the way forward. It's the way in which God will continue to bless in our lives. Go ahead and stand. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father.